I'm a bit of a Ranger fan. I, as you were coming back in, I, I like sports a lot. I actually have the uh, privilege of being the official dermatologist for the New York Yankees, too. So that's kind of fun. And uh, during lunch, I can tell you some good stories about that, too. As we're talking about AKs, I will tell you that almost all the, uh, the veteran Caucasian players, by the time they're in their late 30s, almost all of them have AKs or worse by that point, because most of them have grown up in very sunny areas and uh, lived their life in the sun, so particularly relevant to this. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening with AKs, and uh, it really is a very complex area. We could spend the whole day on a conference on AKs, but I'm going to try to give you some stuff which I think are important in understanding the studies, comparing apples to apples with these studies, looking at the advantages and disadvantages of different approaches, and then trying to give you a template of where I use different drugs and, and how I do that. Um, and I do, again, a bunch of uh, efficacy testing and consulting for a variety of companies involved here. So a lot of this is also in our textbook that I mentioned before. So let's talk about AKs. Well, originally AKs were called senile keratoses. Um, and, uh, that term is not PC anymore, because uh, obviously if you get them in your 20s, which we see, I've actually seen AKs in teenagers even now. Um, uh, younger people get them, and uh, again, senile is not a very PC term. Actinic keratosis in Greek means sun-related rough spot, so that's where the term comes from. So what are they? And they're defined in different ways in different places as a cutaneous dysplasia of the epidermis, and what typically happens is a slowly, it's a slowly developing localized thickening of the outer layers of the skin, and it's almost always a result of chronic sun exposure for the things we're going to talk about today. So the problem with AKs is it's very tough to photograph them. So when you're looking at studies and looking at papers, these are people with sort of extreme AKs. Some of these photographs have been highlighted in Photoshop. It'll bring the red out a little bit. But it is, it is tough to photograph these lesions. Um, but you see everything from individual lesions to multiple lesions in people across the spectrum. A number of risk factors are out there for AKs. Uh, typically, the fairer you are, males get them more commonly than women, older people more commonly than younger people. Uh, the easier you sunburn, the more poorly you tan. And you also see them in immunosuppressed people and certainly in transplant patients. So uh, there have been different classifications that people have tried to use for AKs. This is one that was done by Bob Schwartz in New Jersey that's been talked about. Um, Clay Cockrell has another series of ones that he uses. None of them have really caught on very well because um, there's so many different variants of it. At the end of the day, every one of them is red and rough and scaly to do this. There we go. And again, this is probably a more common presentation we'd see in the northern part of the U.S., somebody with a few AKs on the forehead, you can see. This is somebody with a little more advanced lesions, so a little more photo damage. This is somebody who clearly had a big skin graft for a skin cancer on his forehead. Um, and this is somebody who was in the middle of treatment, so you can see how the area is lit up. We'll talk about this in a moment. This is uh, some raised. You can see almost this is like a KA-like AK. People have described it with a cutaneous horn on the top. This is somebody who's been treated on their arms. We'll talk about this in a moment, too. And this is somebody who actually wasn't treated, who basically just had this uh, erythematous eruptive kind of K uh, AKs that you see. So... We talk about this, how do you make the diagnosis? Well, you know, certainly with other things, it can, AKs can be confused with amelanotic melanoma, Bowen's disease, an irritated seb can look like an AK, even a superficial basal cell can look like an AK with it. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with histology because I know uh, Whitney High talked about it earlier today, but the reality is AKs, the, the top there is the typical presentation you see with some hyperkeratosis, and you see these, 
these uh, ridges that are just uh, hypertrophic in a sense with this, with an AK. Well, what causes actinic keratosis? Basically, this is uh, a picture of a sunset in Hawaii. This was a study I was uh, funded to go do, so I took a picture there. No, just kidding. But I wish I, wish I was funded for a study to do that. Uh, but certainly, sun exposure is what's needed behind this. And a bunch of studies showing that the epidemiology of AKs, the closer you are to the equator, the greater the sun risk and the greater the incidence of AKs. As I mentioned before, age, males, cumulative sun exposure, fair skin. But the fact is that anybody could get AKs. Even the darkest skinned individual could get them, not as frequently. And the risk factors are similar to those that we see for invasive squamous cell carcinoma. So that's probably the most important feature there. So some people have argued that AKs are really squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And you see this in the literature. Um, there's people have suggested KIN, K-I-N, for keratinocytic uh, intraepidermal neoplasia, describing them as that, a variety of other things. And the reality is, um, who knows? The way I like to look at it is you've got a spectrum from early photo damage through AK to invasive squamous cell. And if you draw the line here, then you're saying the AKs are pre-skin cancers. If you draw the line here, then you're saying they're very early squamous cell carcinomas. But at the end of the day, you still have to consider treating them because if they progress or wherever they are in the process, you want to get rid of them to do this. And the point is, here's somebody with a dorsal of a hand, and here's the same person about 10 years later, and you can see that's an invasive squamous cell. Had we treated it earlier, it would have been a lot easier to do. So what's the risk of an AK progressing to squamous cell carcinoma? That's the question the government's been asking all the time to see if they can justify paying to treat these lesions. And this was the first paper that came out on this, which is over 20 years now, 25 years, by Robin Marks in Australia. Very controversial paper in The Lancet. And what he did is he looked at almost 1,700 people that he followed over five years. And in that group of people, 10 of the 17 squamous cells that they developed in that period of time were diagnosed as an AK in the prior year. So he looked at, he said, the annual, the annual risk of progression of an AK in one year was less than one in 1,000. And therefore, he concluded that maybe it's not cost effective to treat these things. Just wait till they turn into squamous cells and treat them. So Dotson and Spain and University of Missouri published a follow-up using the same data and same calculations that Robin Marks did, but looked at it a different way. In the Marks study, the average number of AKs per patient were 7.7 lesions. And the annual risk of progression in that study was about 1 in 400 for an, additional, for an individual AK. So the probability that one AK would not progress in a year is 1 minus that number, or 0.9976. The probability that none of those AKs will progress in one year is that to the 7.7 power. Forget it, the math is right. So about 98% that none of those seven will go in one year. But the probability that at least one of the 7.7 will progress in one year is one minus that, or about 2% on the average person will get a squamous cell within a given year if they have the average number of AKs. And even more importantly, let's look at 10 years with the same calculation. The probability that none of them would progress would be this in one year. The no over 10 years is that to the 10th power. So the probability that at least one lesion on the average person will progress to an invasive squamous cell in 10 years is about 16% or about one in six. So you're starting to get to numbers where you say, gee, it is worth doing this if you don't look at it annually, but you go over a lifetime to treat these. So this was sort of the counter-argument to that paper. And this, this discussion still goes on back and forth for this. Because 
If you look at the studies, they're, all, they're kind of all over the place. Rick Glogow did a review of this for the JAD in 2000. You see that there's, there's the Mark study I just showed you. This is a Dotson, this is Spain study, two studies by Jim Graham, and Mark Nestor did a study uh, in South Florida looking at the progression. So clearly there is a progression of these leads to invasive squamous cells for this. But the problem really is that it's very hard to determine the risk of an individual lesion in turning into invasive squamous cell. In other words, if somebody has 10 AKs, I cannot say which of those will go on to be squamous cell. That's really what the challenge is, invasive squamous cell. Now, there's a lot of other limitations on these studies. First of all, um, you know, as you know, patients can often feel AKs before you can see them. They feel a little rough for this. It's very tough to count AKs in these studies. One of the tricks that's done is to use self-tanners because the dihydroxyacetone is picked up in the hyperkeratosis of the AK, so it turns them brown and makes them easier to really count. The problem is the patients look like crap afterwards because <laughs> they got brown all over, it doesn't come off, right? So they've got a very a weird look, ugly tan. In fact, if you see patients who have AKs who use self-tanners, you'll see exactly how this looks. But it does help to count. Um, and people that have severely photodamaged skin, it's not clear where one AK stops and the next one starts. Is it two? Is it two that have collided? Is it one big one? So it's hard to do the counts. The other thing that I talked about, it's very hard to photograph these lesions. So here's a patient with a lot of AKs. You can hardly see this on her. Now, if I photo enhance her, which is what we did here, these are where all the AKs are. And I'll take the photo enhancement off. And now you know where to look. You can sort of see where they all are. So there are some photo enhancement algorithms try to help count with AKs, but it is a challenge in any of these studies to do the counting. And finally, some of those studies that had low numbers of progression had young patients in them. So if you use a, a data set with primarily younger patients, you may underestimate the true risk of progression because the people just haven't lived long enough to have their AKs progress to invasive squamous cells. So what are the management implications? Well, obviously, it's much better to catch and treat an AK than an invasive squamous cell. Everybody agrees with that. That's easy. And uh, the other thing that pushes management, this is a paper by Steve Feldman that was in the JAD that said that observation of AKs until some evolve into invasive squamous cell is considered substandard care. Well, once that's in the literature, every lawyer gloms onto that, right? And the reality is you have to have a really good reason not to treat these AKs because, God forbid, you're in a lawsuit, you can, uh, this will come after you. So the Academy's been working on this issue for over 20 years, and, and you know, again, been progressive, and a lot of the effort, again, is talking to government and insurance companies to ensure that they continue to cover these. These are a bunch of papers. This was a review in the JAN in 2000 uh, for this. This is a young picture of Clay Cockrell. He's a little older now. But uh, he really, in 2001, was the, he and Cliff Lober were the driving forces in going to CMS and the government and getting them to revise the policy when they were thinking of stopping covering AK. So he really deserves the credit for this. So again, this was the memorandum that came out afterwards that said they concluded it is warranted, <coughs> and that's where we are with it now. Well, is, it, is, it, is there a need to do a controlled study? This is what the government has asked for, to compare observation to treatment. Well, how, how could you ethically perform such a study when you know a percentage of these are going to go into cancer that potentially could kill you? People die from squamous cell carcinoma. And the analogy that's given back to the government is sort of the same analogy that's used for pap smears. You know, when, when pap smears were first described, there wasn't a controlled trial where they gave half the people pap smears heavily. They showed that people who had pap smears done on a regular basis had lower mortality and morbidity from potential cervical cancer. So it's very similar to that, except if you look at this. And uh, this is, again, this idea of 
people are trying to treat intraepidermal, intraepithelial neoplasia and a variety of cancers. It goes along with the idea of treating AKs too. So in terms of the risk of invasive squamous cell in AKs, we know that the squamous cell incidence is rising, that there are potential precursors to invasive squamous cell, whether you call them SECs in situ or AKs, they're precursors to invasive squamous cells. The risk of progression of invasive squamous cell per patient is greater than per individual lesion. The mortality we know from invasive squamous cell is about 1%. Effective treatment lowers progression, we know that. All AKs should be considered for treatment. That's the wording I use so we don't get ourselves caught in a bind. Uh, there's a need for modalities to treat patients with multiple lesions. We'll talk about field therapy in a moment. But really, it'd be great if we could identify which is the lesion that's going to progress and treat it. And maybe someday there'll be genetic markers or something to do, but up to this point, we don't have that. So we've got this patient here. It doesn't look like much, but the reality is we don't want to let it turn into this. This is the same patient, happens to be from NYU, about 10 years later, lost a follow-up, came in with a big neurotropic squamous cell. So you can see that these things do get bad if they're not treated. We want to keep that from happening. So let's look at some of the epidemiology. We know the rates of AKs are rising dramatically. Here's a couple of studies that were done, by one by Stu Salachet. It's actually the third most frequent uh, problem for dermatology visits. This is back 20 years ago. There was uh, 14 million visits, and we know there's some deaths from non-melanoma skin cancer. This was the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, which is done by the NIH, uh, and uh, the FDA also contributed some of this. But um, there were 47 million AKs diagnosed in that 10-year period in the U.S. and visits. Uh, this was looking at the, uh, in, in Queensland, Australia, as I mentioned, Northern Australia, 43% of the people, this would be like the same latitude as Miami. So 43% had at least one AK, 18% of the population had at least 10 AKs here. Uh, and these were the relative risks. If you had fair skin, 14-fold increase, medium skin, six-fold increase. If you had maximal occupational uh, sun exposure, again, it was increased uh, for these various things. So, a number of these studies have been looked at. What's the idea behind treating AKs? Again, we want to prevent squamous cell invasion and metastasis, but also some people have uh, symptoms from them. We want to improve cosmetic appearance, certainly. We want to reduce the likelihood of new lesions, and we want to proactively treat subclinical lesions. I mean, that would be if a perfect treatment, a perfect treatment goal would be this kind of strategy for it. So as I mentioned, there's also the number of AKs that are out there increases your risk for developing, uh, relative risk for developing squamous cell. You could see those who had 20 or more AKs had 20 times the chance of getting uh, basically uh, squamous cell than those who had five or fewer did. And the other challenge is there's a continuum of disease. So what I mean by that, somebody comes in with a bunch of AKs on a photodamaged skin. We have a challenge here because we know this because here's a perfect patient. Which of these is going to progress to invasive squamous cell? We don't know, right? There's no way of knowing for this. So should all of them be treated? And the answer is probably at this point, since we don't know, we probably have to do this with trying to minimize uh, persistence with standard treatment. So a bunch of studies have been looked at. I'm going to talk about some of the issues. This was a study done at the VA hospital in, uh, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, with Marty Weinstock and his group looking at this. And they looked at the topical tretinoin as a possible way of treating a chemo prevention for preventing future AKs, so using it sort of on a chronic basis for this. And it turns out, what was kind of interesting from the study is that these were the things that they were biopsied, they thought they biopsied as AKs, and a lot of them you see came back as SCCs, as BCCs, recurrent KAs, a variety of other things with it. But they looked at the progression, the risk of progression in various studies here, and you can see AK to SCC 
was fairly high. And these increase over time with this, to do this. But with the prevention study, what, what Marty Weinstock wanted to use the term instead of just uh, AK is actinic neoplasia syndrome, people that have these kind of sun damage, photo damage fields with lots of AKs. Again, it hasn't really caught on, but the concept is not a bad concept for this. And what they found that was kind of interesting is that you look to see that the rates of squamous cells in young women are going up faster than young men. And the idea behind this, could you use retinoids in these younger women to try to uh, prophylax uh, for these things, as well as the fact they may want to use them for anti-aging, too. If you look at those that are, again, the rates going up for this for basal cell, the same thing with this. So what you really need about treating AKs, per se, is that <coughs> there's a risk of progression we've talked about. There's demonstrates transformation. AKs can also evolve into BCCs. Now, it's not as common, but there are now several studies that show that. So it's not just AK to SCC. You could have AK to BCCs. Um, they have a high rate of clinical regression. About 10% of AKs will spontaneously regress on their own without treatment. About two-thirds of the SECs and one-third of the BCCs in this study were suggested evolved from AKs. And they, they, they grouped them together, SECs and BCCs, as KCs, keratinocytic cancers, and that there may be more than we think that are out there. So how do we evaluate these studies? We look how efficacious these uh, treatments are. It's really hard to do, and I'm going to review some of the issues with you because you're going to see two drugs that come up that have one seems better than the other, but the other one probably is better than the first one because you've got to compare apples to apples. Now, in a lot of these studies, the short-term clearance rates of AKAs may appear to be similar in clinical trials used for field therapy, but the direct comparison of efficacy can be problematic. Trials consistently use different endpoints that I'll show you in a moment, and that's the challenging part. And the real-world clinical practice differs from those of the observed clinical trials. So the results, the efficacy outcomes can be misleading. And again, people use different endpoints at different points. So the goals of AK therapy, we want to maintain the efficacy. We want to be able to have a bigger treatment area. We want to have a shortened duration of treatment. We want to simplify the dosing frequency. So a perfect AK drug would get all those things around the outside while still maintaining efficacy of treatment. So, when you augment AK therapy, you could augment it by expanding the treatment area, shortening the treatment regimen, simplifying the dosing regimen, maintain the efficacy. And I'm, you can't really read this. This is from our textbook. This shows you how many different possible AK treatments are out there. And there's a lot of ways to, to treat AKs, as you all know. I kind of say that it looks kind of like this. This is a Jackson Pollock painting. And the reality is that uh, it's all over the place with these things. It's very hard to determine. So let's start evaluating some AK therapies. It compares apples to apples instead of uh, apples to oranges. Um, and uh, the FDA has rules on how AKs must be so AK therapies must be evaluated. And they're different than what we care about in clinical practice, and I'll show you that in a moment. One of the things are the endpoints. Now, there's different endpoints you can use to look at efficacy for AKs. The lowest hurdle is the percent of lesions that get better. That's kind of what we care about as clinician. We don't expect 100% of AKs to disappear on a treatment but we would like at least 80% or 85 or 90% to clear. But that's what we care about as clinicians. The second hurdle that's used in sub-studies is what percentage of the patients had at least 75% of their AKs clear, okay? That's somewhat relevant uh, to clinicians. But the FDA requires something else, the highest hurdle, which is what percent of the patients had 100% of their AKs disappear. So typically in these studies, 
percentage of lesions that clear are about 80 plus percent. Percentage of the patients with 75 clearance are about 50 to 60 percent. And the percentage of the patients with 100 percent clearance runs 30 to 45 percent in most of the studies. So if somebody says, my drug is better because I have 80 percent clearance, they only had 35 percent clearance, you've got to look at the endpoints and compare apples to apples. So let's just show an example here. This is uh, for inginal amebutate, and this was to assess efficacy and, and the safety of the drug. The complete clearance rate for imaginal amebutate was 40 to 54% compared to 11% in the vehicle. That's actually pretty good, but that's the 100, what percentage of the patients had 100% clearance? That's not bad. And this is looking at other 67% of the patient had a clinical clearance of at least four of the five treated lesions. So that's like the 80% clearance or 75% clearance, but it's a higher number. Same drug, all of a sudden it sounds like it's a better drug with that. Now, the study anatomic sites and areas make a difference on these trials because if you have different size, a smaller study area, and you're trying to get 100% clearance, if you're just looking at the study area that you treated, it's much easier to get that than if you had a larger study area to get 100% clearance because the larger study area is going to have more AKs on it, so it's harder to get 100% to do this. So fewer lesions, smaller treatment size, Typically, for these AK studies, it's 5 by 5 centimeters or 2 by 2 inches of the areas that are looked at. If you do a full face with more lesions with 200 square centimeters, which some of the studies do, it's harder to achieve that 100% endpoint. So therefore, again, apples to apples, look at these studies. Um, and this is what PDT has looked at another way. Here's 78% clearance at 12 months for full face. You've got to look at that and look at the size. Again, from mal PDP and another way of looking at it. We're going to talk about PDT treatment in a moment. But if you compare, this is vehicle comparing to inhaled mebutate and look at the percent of clearance of lesions versus other sites. Anatomic sites can make a difference. It's harder to treat AKs on the backs of the hands than on the face. So if you're comparing one study from a face to another study to a dorsal hands, not the same thing. So how large an area was treatable? Again, you have to look at the studies to see and compare with that. Now, another thing that comes up in these studies is when do the lesions appear? You all know when you apply uh, topical therapy for AKs, you end up seeing subclinical lesions, lesions that you didn't see beforehand, but came out during the time of the treatment. So those are called, the ones that appear before you start the trials are called ITT, or intent to treat lesions. You count the lesions before you start. But under the FDA rules, complete clearance is defined as the ones you see at the start, plus all the new ones that lit up also have to disappear. So that makes it more of a challenge, and this is obviously somebody with intent to treat lesions. They treat, and all of a sudden some new lesions have popped up. These would, to us clinically, would be happy with this, but the reality is that uh, this, these two pieces would fail the FDA trials for this. As you see, they have new lesions that have come up, but the reality is they still would be fine for us as clinicians, but it wouldn't work. So the other thing is, how long do these things go for? This looks at recurrences in terms of initially cleared lesions. And this was, if you had a 12-month trial here, these, if you looked at Amicomod versus 5-FU versus Cryo, you can see that at 12 months out, some of these patients had recurred only for Cryo, for example, only 28% of the patients still had clearance who were cleared at the end of a trial, the original trial. So people look at the time to clearance. If you have a study that only runs for eight weeks versus one that runs for a year and you're doing measurements, it's tougher to reach that hurdle, too, for that. And again, this was a study done with a MICWAN. I'm not going to go through each of these trials for this because we're going to get to the drugs individually in a moment. But you can see over here, this was comparing a MICWAMOD with the dark blue is complete clearance. The light blue is the 75%, the partial clearance. And again, in that 45%, the 50 to 60% range, that's pretty normal for that. 
This is the median reduction in AKs. So again, 83% of the AKs, the lesions disappeared, again, in that 80% range. Just to show you an example of what you'd expect from this. Now, the drug concentration makes a difference in these studies, too. So the 5-FU, the value of the lower concentration is certainly a less brisk reaction, but does that result in a decrease in efficacy? Maybe. Okay, again, it depends on the study that's been done. This was a study done with Inginol and looking at a variety of different concentrations, and you saw that the fact that it made a difference in terms of the efficacy. Does the reaction intensity make a difference in these trials to do this? And the answer is that a lot of these drugs it does. For imiquimod, for example, the degree of intensity of the reaction, as it is with 5-FU, makes a difference. And this is just to show the lesion counts over time. I'm going to just go through these photos. But this was from Mark Level's study of the JAD. And basically, you can see the percentage complete clearance rates, complete clearance rates were directly a function of the intensity of the erythema that was achieved. You see the same thing with 5-FU and to some extent with inginol and also. The study size makes a difference. You know, if you have a fewer number of lesions and fewer number of patients, it's easier to get a complete clearance or get 100% clearance and approach it. But this was an interesting study that was done in six arms, actually, looking at inginol and with 160 patients roughly in each arm, looking, uh, sorry, with uh, imiquimod, rather, of 3.75%, uh, 2.5%, three, three uh, and two arms with controls for two weeks and three weeks. And again, when you have larger study sizes, those are more valuable. What types of AKs are allowed in the study? You look at the entry criteria. If you have a patient with all hypertrophic AKs, they're less likely to get clearance. Many of the studies will exclude hypertrophic AKs um, with this, to do this. And also economic considerations. We know that uh, there are advantages and disadvantages of these various therapies we're going to talk about. Um, but the reality is that uh, they all have advantages. They all have costs to them. Some cost more than others to do. So there are many differing endpoints that you have. We talked about median clearance, collegiate clearance, 75% clearance, 100% clearance. The challenge is meeting those regulatory endpoints when a new drug comes out for the companies with the FDA. But we also have to clarify those endpoints when you look as a clinician to evaluate what these are. So one of the other issues that comes up is field therapy versus lesional therapy. And you know, lesional therapy is easy. That's cryo. You pick each lesion off, and you squirt it with a gun and liquid nitrogen to get it. But it's really, some people say cryo is a dinosaur. It's not really a dinosaur. It really isn't. Uh, the cryo is certainly the mainstay of what we do. But there are advantages and disadvantages to try and do a lesional therapy or a field therapy. Certainly, the lesional targeted therapies, such as cryo, curatage, PDT, whatever can be done. Field therapy, you can use all these other things to do and catch a whole field. The advantage of the field therapy is you're treating subclinical lesions, but you may miss some of the individual lesions that maybe they may break through the field therapy to be treated. This is one of the uh, therapies that was, the studies was done. It's quoted in a bunch of studies looking at comparing a, a Miquimod, 5-FU, and cryotherapy. Now, it was done in Germany, uh, and it was done by Egard Stockfleth, who's a good researcher there. What was interesting is when they do studies in Europe, they have to look at the literature and take the extreme value for anything they're trying to compare from head to head. So they used 5% of Miquimod. They used 5% of 5-FU ointment, which is pretty intense. But more importantly, they looked at, the, for cryo, how much time you have to use when you use a cryo spray. And that's all over the literature. But the most intense value was 20 to 40 seconds of freezing. Now, think about that. For 20 to 40 seconds, I don't think my patients would tolerate that for an AK. But maybe the Germans are tougher than we are. <laughs> but uh, really, you think about this, but that's how they did that study. 
Now, even with that, they evaluated at eight weeks, you know, with six weeks after cryo, and then they followed up for 12 months afterwards. That's a study I showed you before. And you could see that the non-recurrence of initially cleared lesions was the highest with the amiquimod, the field therapy, the second highest with the 5-FU, and lowest with the cryo, again, because you're not getting the field therapy effects of this. We talked about progression of AKs to invasive squamous cells, and uh, that's one of the things that diclofenac has been effective in showing a little bit with this, that um, at least the studies for this, there have been some suggesting that it may be the most effective in protecting uh, the progression. And uh, this is a study that looked at AKs treated with diclofenac for three months. A complete histologic resolution was achieved in 23%, but histologically, the mitoses per high-powered field were significantly lowered. So at least on a genetic level and on a basic science level, the diclofenac really caused a change in these areas for this. Head-to-head -head comparisons are always tough, as we talked about. But one of the things that really is important in these is discontinuation rate. It doesn't help if the patients start using it, <coughs> excuse me, start using it and then give up in the middle. And this was a study looking at comparing, uh, again, 3.75 to 5% of micromod looking at this. And it turned out that the lower concentration of amiquimod, the patients were less likely to discontinue. In this case, 96% of the subjects actually completed the trial compared to something significantly lower for the 5%. Now, uh, I'm not going to, this is a study that's done the same thing basically with ingenol amibutate. And you look through this and you can see that basically the completion rate was better for the uh, lower concentration. Now, there's a bunch of scores that are out there, just like there are for psoriasis, PASI scores, and other things. But people do these uh, lesion severity scores. And a lot of times you'll see these with, and they're just an arbitrary score looking on counts and how much reaction you get over time and after the treatments. And basically, the higher the line is, the more kinds of reaction you're getting there. Um, people look at effectiveness, side effects, convenience, global satisfaction. There's no official score. You'll get a lot of literature, again, from uh, companies as they bring and they detail you with these different scores, but they don't really don't mean very much. We talked about drug concentration. This is response in ingenol mebutate, where you can see that the higher concentrations with the three-day regimen people did better with. In general, in most of these drugs, the higher concentration does better, but the reality is it also causes more side effects and less compliance, so it's always a trade-off with that, too. This was looking at the same study. You saw the higher concentration had a greater median reduction in the number of AKs, too, with this, 85% for those who used it for three days. Then we talk about clearance. Is it clinical versus histological clearance? That's actually a big difference in these studies, too, because typically the, <coughs> excuse me, the histologic clearance tends to be lower than the clinical clearance. So if I look at a patient, I say, all the ATAs are cleared, and then I do a biopsy of the area, I will find, in many cases, subclinical AKs. So when you look at the endpoints again, you've got to look at which clearance you're looking at. Also, photographic clearance. I told you it's hard to photograph these, um, and therefore there's some skepticism when you view pictures of 100% cures, have a little bit of skepticism anyway. So let's talk about the therapeutic choices that are out there for kinds of treatment. Cryosurgery, we talked about the mainstay. Um, here's a paper. There's not a lot of papers out there, you can imagine, but uh, these were a much better than 5-FU when they used with procedures, a paper of the JAD. I think all of us know how to use uh, cryosurgery. I don't think anybody does this for the U.S. for 20 to 40 seconds. Typically, well, 3 to 5 seconds or 3 to 7 seconds, that's what's typically done at most with this. And you can look at the cure rates. Do get better with the real freezing. Here's one study that was an open-label study that showed uh, less than five seconds only had 39% removal, 
but uh, more than 20 seconds had 83% removal, but they also had hypopigmentation, necrosis, all the other things too. So um, this was a prospective study that was published in the British Journal, or International Journal, excuse me, looking at the cure rate for cryo, and you can see that if the greater the freeze time over time, definitely an improved cure rate with this. Um, this was looking, again, the same idea with the time by number of lesions and worked well. So my preference for cryo is when I have targeted lesions, a number of small lesions, hypertrophic lesions, which do much better with cryo than they do with uh, topical therapies. Um, you know, you got to be concerned about hypopigmentation is common, especially these fair skin patients. And then we consider before or after with field therapy. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, we talked about this issue again before. This is the same patient. How do we know which one of these to treat with cryo? Well, the field therapy obviates that because the reality is there's a bunch of ways to do that and treat all those lesions at the same time with a variety of things. Now, the different modalities, this is, this is looking at the, that highest hurdle, that 100% clearance. I told you, you can see they're all about the same. They're all in that 35 to 50% range, typically, that you're going to see in these studies. So again, you look at those studies, that's the efficacy we're looking for for 100% clearance. And the other thing I remember with AKs, that you're looking at the tip of the iceberg, because sometimes they're on the surface, there could be things underneath. That's one of the advantages of the field therapies, because they're kind of treating the area and getting involved in other areas. So when you think about what treatments to use, again, it's more a style thing. You can customize it to certain patients. Some patients don't want a reaction. Some patients want a shorter treatment. That's sort of the challenge with it. Topical retinoids have been used. This I alluded to before, the Marty Weinstock study. Not very commonly used, but there are people who use it. Let's talk about 5-FU. Now, I think this is the one that I certainly was trained on when I was a resident. Uh, that's about all there was. It was that and cryo were the choices. And I think we've all seen that brisk reaction, the way it should look in the middle with this. As I showed you, the degree of response does correlate with the amount of the intensity of the reaction. And the reality is it does work quite well. You have to handhold your patients. I show them a picture like that and said, you're going to look like raw hamburger. I still get the phone calls. But if you warn them, and they look so good afterwards, I don't know if any of you realize that 5-FU topically was actually thought of, they, they noticed that in the 50s that people were getting that for colon cancer, elderly people, their AKs lit up. They were getting it systemically. So they, this before they had IRBs and tests, they went to some nursing homes in Arkansas. And uh, I hope nobody from here is from Arkansas. But uh, they did tests, and they noted that, in fact, uh, they thought it might help wrinkles, too. Uh, and didn't do much for the wrinkles, but all their AKs lit up and got treated. And this is, this, there's no uh, prior studies done with the FDA or anything with it. They just got the approval and started using it at that time. So that's actually how it started, and it does work quite well. Half percent 5-FU or CARAC. I mean, here's the example. You get typically a little less brisk reaction. That's one of the pluses of it. And this is a typical reaction you'd see from CARAC. Uh, so this is you know, kind of low expectations for this, but uh, it does, in fact, work quite well. Uh, this is a reaction, sort of a brisk reaction you'd see with CARAC with this. Um, and again, the studies are out there that show that it does work uh, and works well. But uh, there are ways to increase the tolerance to 5-FU. Um, you can use pulse dosing. People have tried like once a week, one week rather, uh, a month for six months. Use corticosteroids at the same time. Use corticosteroids afterwards. Uh, use sequential treatment. Uh, you know, uh, basically uh, use other kinds of things. But all these things basically lower the efficacy of the drug. If you really want it to work, you've got to just bite the bullet, have the patient bite the bullet, and let them look miserable for a short period of time for it. 
So what you really need to know about 5-FU is that it's a once-a-day regimen for all strain. Don't use it twice a day. The number of applications really makes the difference. Typically, I have my patients use it about three weeks. Uh, for the face, for the arms and trunk, you have to use it longer. And you can add antihistamines or NSAIDs or topical steroids are okay after the treatment's complete to try to bring down the redness. Miquimod. Um, you know, miquimod is basically a, uh, a bunch of uh, modifiers. I've been done with this. Look at this. But it does attack the AKs. Um, this was the Mark Levall study that was done and published in the JAD. The original FDA uh, recommended dosing is twice a week for 16 weeks. Uh, virtually nobody uses this dosing, but this is on the label, the dosing for it. People typically use uh, every day for four weeks, uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. There's a variety of things for this. And this is the Levwall study. I showed you this slide earlier, but it was about a uh, uh, complete clearance rate of about 45%, which is pretty good with that. And the median reduction in lesions was 83%. Now, this was a looking at the uh, lower concentrations of uh, miquimod, 2.5%, and 3.75, with the idea being that could you lower the briskness of the reaction by having a rest period in between. So what they did is they used either two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, or three weeks off, three weeks on, three weeks off, three weeks on to do this for a rest period. And, and it turns out, I'm going to just skip through this, but you had sustained clearance with the two-week studies with, you know, for two, two, and two for the 3.75% and the 2.5%. The 3.75% was slightly better, as you can see, for this at 12 months out. And this is lesion counts and the scoring. I'm, again, I'm not going to go through this. But this is the degree of response that you can see from strong response to moderate response to mild response. Again, I always show my patients the strong response because I want to make sure that they know kind of what to expect with it. So. Uh, this is the results, and the reason that the 3.75% of Mikomod was chosen with the two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, was basically it had the best results with the least uh, side effects for it. So that's basically with this. Um, you can see 67% of the subject had complete clearance, remained lesion-free at six months. That's pretty good. And 40% had complete clearance at 12 months. That's very good for this. So the issue with the Mikomod, you've got to be flexible for this. And, um, you know, again... Typically, I will vary how I do this depending on how sensitive patients are. Um, the duration required for clearance is obviously variable. I mean, I'll have people go four weeks or six weeks sometimes with it. It depends on the location. I usually have people begin by a little bit less than every day. I have people go five days a week, so I tell them weekdays on, weekends off to get them started, a little rest period with this. If they're getting a bad reaction, I give them a rest period of one to two weeks and restart them. But uh, in fact, the degree of inflammation is the best predictor of how they're going to do. So uh, this is basically what I do with this. This was trying to simplify it. A paper looked at it <coughs> Excuse me, with this. And I, I showed you this before, so I'm going to just skip on through this for a second. I apologize. And uh, again, this is a different set of patients look at mild, moderate, severe responses from that other study. But I think I tend to get more brisk response on average or closer to the severe responses average with this. But there was the long-term clearance with this. Diclofenac we touched on briefly before, but the advantage of diclofenac, as I said, um, it has the potential to potentially halt the progression. That's the strongest thing for this. Um, this was 65 patients who had complete histological achievement in 15 patients, so 23% with this. And what's interesting, diclofenac, the studies have been best on long-term clearance with this. This was uh, people that had uh, diclofenac for 90 days. At the downside of this, you have to treat with at least 90 to 120 days with it. Then they had 30 days of follow-up, and they had a year extension of follow-up with this. 
and that, they, in other words, they were checked a year after the completion of treatment. And you can see that when you look at this, there's a significant reduction from baseline even at a year out, which is fairly impressive with this. So um, this is John Wolfe has shown, done a study, looked at this, and looking at 30 days versus 90 days. This is how somebody looks at 30 days. This is how somebody looked at 90 days. If you have a patient who said, I can't look bad, but I'm willing to also use this cream for 90 to 120 days, this is the drug for them. Because, in fact, what, one of the problems with the drug is that if people have had a prior treatment with something else, they think that they're getting nothing out of it because it's not working for them because they don't see the reaction. But in fact, this is a drug that is not, the efficacy is not related to the degree of reaction to it. What also diclofenac works very well for is actinic chelitis. You know, if you put 5-FU or micomon on the lips for that, you get a really, really brisk reaction that's incredibly painful. Diclofenac works very well for that too. And here's just an example of how well the results were at day 30. Almost no reaction, but a marked clearance of the actinic chelitis for this. Photodynamic therapy, again, uh, PDT is a, a combination, and of course we have the, the blue light that's used primarily with this. The idea is you put a photosensitizer on the lesion to sensitize it, and because it absorbs in certain wavelengths, primarily in the blue, uh, purple-blue area, uh, and the light is at the, basically the same wavelength, you get the reaction. Here's just an example from um, <coughs> Colin Morton from Scotland looking at actinic keratosis. And that's about the brisk that you get. I get a little more than that average of the middle photo for this. This is a PDT that was used for SEC in situ, so again by Mitch Goldman, and see the kind of reaction you get, but pretty good result cosmetically. Now it works because you generate singlet oxygen using the drugs and the light, and it becomes locally destructive for this. And it results in the formation of protoporphyrin 9, which is a photosensitizer. You then can expose the patient to light that are in one of those peaks that we mentioned. Uh, and it can be painful. Uh, because as the photosensitizer is activated, you get a reaction that does hurt. Um, basically, again, these are the peaks for it. So when you do this and apply it, it's used for, with a blue light typically for 1,000 seconds. Now, why 1,000 seconds? That's because they did the study with that. That's 16 minutes and 40 seconds, so that's why I've never figured that one out either. To initially, we used to have to apply the PDT uh, the afternoon before. So I'd have the patients come in at 4 or 5 in the afternoon and then treat them the next morning with about a 16-hour or so incubation period. Um, and that works well for hypertrophic AKs, but a lot of studies show that you don't need that anymore for this. The red light activates the drug a little faster, about half the speed for this, and you can use IPL to activate it too. <coughs> but the blue light does work the best overall for this. So. What's interesting, when you see this, some of the safety points with this, you don't see a lot of DNA damage. There's really no scarring that occurs. Um, and you have to be careful, though, in certain patients that have porphyrias, that that can be a problem with them. We can activate them. So you want to exclude those patients with porphyria with this. So people have tried to cut down on the incubation time for PDT. And the reality is that it turns out that the short incubation time, the so-called short contact PDT, now has been shown to be just about as effective. So this is some studies looking at using fluorescence to monitor the, the uh, development of uh, protoporphyrin 9. And what you see from this basically is that the, it goes up over time, but you get to the threshold you need within about an hour or two, and even less in some cases. So as you look at this, you can see here 48% of lesions were higher than background by 20 minutes, but 100% of the lesions were higher than background by two hours. So if you get one to two hours, you're pretty much getting enough protoporphyrin 9 activated to do the trick for you. And this is showing the same thing graphically from that study. Um, they do this actually, interestingly, with the fluorescence monitoring 
uh, for this. You'll see different spots that are checked with it, but it does, in fact, work with this. This is the actual study that was done. In, it was done actually in optics literature looking at this, and it worked quite well for it. So does the degree of redness in the reaction change as a function of these indirect fluorescent measurements, which was done, and it turns out that it actually does, that you can use this as indirect measure how effective the PDT is going to work. Nothing we would use in dermatology, but at least the basic science supports it for this. So short contact uh, ALA is as effective as the old longer protocols, and also more importantly, the PDT, even if it's applied to individual lesions, there is some spreading of it, so you get sort of a local field effect with it too. Um, I've got a high clearance in the majority of patients with it. And again, if you compare this, there's different uh, treatments that are out there. You get a pretty high complete clearance rate because, again, it's a field therapy that's immediately being applied. So it's a field plus destruction that you're seeing with this at the highest rate. Um, again, this is some more examples. I'm going to show you a lot of photographs here that you see with the recovery. The nice thing about PDT, the recovery begins immediately post-treatment, so you don't peak a few days later with this. And uh, you can treat multiple lesions, excellent cosmetic result. You get rid of some of the photo damage at the same time, uh, and 80 people like it. It does hurt when you do it. Uh, we have patients, we blow fan, have fans that are blowing on them. We have ice on them at various sometimes or nearby. Um, in the old days when you had the 16-hour uh, pre-incubation, we had our uh, blue U in the backmost office because uh, sometimes you hear a little bit of uh, screaming from the patients. It wasn't very good for my waiting room. But it's really not that bad now with the short contact. This is just an example of what you would see. Again, I'm just showing some photos. This was a use of uh, blue light uh, for the upper extremities with this. Another study I'll just show you with this uh, placing for the arms. I'm just going to go through these quickly. And you can see here's the clearance rates, as you can see, 75% uh, and 88% on extremities. That's pretty impressive, with, as we talked about before. So what's the best pretreatment? Can you do something to make this work a little more effectively? And some people pretreat with retinoids to have the, uh, the, the ALA uh, penetrate a little more easily. That's been done, especially on the arms. It worked uh, a little better with that in some cases than this study. So we, uh, once on the extremities, we tend to pretreat. Um, sometimes occlusion with the pretreatment helps. And it'd be basically you can incubate for two to three hours and we have used cotton gloves and long sleeve shirts afterwards, so if they go outside the sun, they're not getting an increased reaction from it, the patient being done. This is also a, a newer study that's come out that's kind of interesting that shows that preheating the area makes the protoporphyrin uh, more effective. So this is showing a thermal PDT that protoporphyrin synthesis is temperature dependent and compared with contact cooling. The idea behind was look at the difference with six degrees centigrade difference a marked improvement in terms of the efficacy. So people are trying now, again, with preheating the area to the skin right before the blue light is applied to get a, a better clearance rate at six months with this. So you have heating pads that will heat you about, uh, to about 40 degrees Celsius with this. Um, now, the prevention of side effects in pain control, I talked about this. And the reason that it's mediated by histamine release with PDT, that's a problem. So theoretically, antihistamines could be effective and some people have tried that, giving patients antihistamines to cut down the pain, taking them about two or three hours before. It works well with this. And uh, fans, I'm, again, I'm just going to go through this. You can use PDT with uh, Fraxel lasers. It works quite well. You can put people out of the sun. You're not controlling it. It works quite well. You can use uh, halogen spots. Even your halogen spot will work for PDT. Almost anything works about it. Um, PDT can also be used for chemo prevention of non-melanoma skin cancer. I'm not going to touch that because our next speaker probably will. It can be used in organ transplant patients with lots of AKs and SCCs. 
Um, and uh, I'll just, again, skip through this because uh, just exhale. Actinokelitis, I mentioned that before for diclofenac. It can be used for, uh, this is just an example of it. And uh, so again, the advantages are it's effective. You get rid of some of the photo damage. Uh, other uses in acne, you can use our area. It's easy to comply because it's a one-stop procedure. The disadvantages, there's thinging and burning, machines cost, and the re there's reimbursement issues. Sometimes you get full reimbursement. So sometimes we will microdermabrade off some of the thick AKs prior to it. I think that's the most important thing. Make sure there's cool airflow and uh, treat them at three to four week intervals to do this. So now let's talk about Inginol Mebutate, which is the new kid on the block. Developed from a weed that's in Australia that they noticed that the locals were using this weed who had a lot of photo damage, and they were able to isolate what the actual active was in the weed, and that's what the drug is. And it appears to have a dual mechanism of action with the rapid and direct cell death, and also neutrophil-mediated antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. So the two of these work together with this, the extract of the weed to make it happen. Um, basically, uh, with the original studies in Australia showed complete clearance at 50%. Again, that's a high number. And how does it do this? Again, there's a third pathway that may modulate uh, protein kinase C uh, for various things for this. So this is the original study that was published by Larry Anderson in the JAD. And they looked at the original complete clearance rate looking at a 0.5% and a 0.25% concentration with follow-up ranging from 40 to 54%. They compared it against placebo. They looked, this was the next study that was done in a poster at the academy looking at other concentrations for two days or three days, looking at bigger areas, uh, looking at very, I alluded to this earlier, but they actually had eight arms to this with th three different concentrations and three dif four, uh, two different treatment regimens and also uh, two that were just uh, control with the vehicle gel. And it turned out that this is the kind of response you see, you get a peak in four to eight days with this but even though the treatment's either only for two days or three days, it takes about six to eight weeks for the full effect to be really gone. So it takes a while for that redness to go down. Again, the peak is about four to eight days with this. And uh, the best outcome, it turned out, was to use the 0.15% for three days when they did the head and neck. This is the article that was in the New England Journal about a year and a half ago with Mark Lebel and Larry Anderson and the others in the group that were doing this. And uh, they compared the different concentration applied to a 25 square centimeter area once a day for three consecutive days on the face or the scalp or for two consecutive days on the trunk and the extremities with this. And the clearance rate was fairly dramatic for this. You can see the reduction of lesions at, at zero and at day 57. And this is the uh, median reduction in numbers of lesions. Again, that percentage is in that 80% level roughly in lesion count. This is the uh, score of the intensity and you can see it falls off after it peaks in about four to eight days. This is, the, again, from the New England Journal article. You can see the results of typical redness that you see with this. This is from the arm, and I'm just going to roll through these because you've all probably seen how these look, but you can see they all peak around that four to eight day period. That's the important thing with this drug. Now, sometimes you get really brisk reactions with this drug, as you see from this, and <clears throat> the, the disadvantage of this drug is because once you've given it you can't titrate it away. So you're on the committed pathway. Other, the other drugs, if the reaction is really bad, you can stop or take a rest period. What's done here is done. So that's one of the problems with this. But it does work well. And for compliance, it's great if you only have to use something for three days or for two days to make it work. I'll just go through the, this was one done for the head. <clears throat> it was an additional study that was done. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But 
The bottom line, you can see here, they got a, a, a complete lesion count clearance rate in this particular study at day 57 was 86%, which is excellent, certainly, for that. And you can see the relationship on the face versus the scalp with pretty good clearance there. Um, they looked at adverse events, and you can see about a fourth of the patients had significant uh, adverse events with this. Application site pain was one of the big ones. So, um, Again, you look at these various local skin reaction responses. They looked at a score system. I'm not going to go through this. This is the grading scale of the kind of reactions. What's more important, if you look at the threes and the fours, those are pretty brisk reactions. And you can see, again, this drug can generate brisk reactions, and it's impossible to predict who's going to get it with this. So this is the important part I want to leave you with and finish with, is that this is where it's at right now is combination therapy. And why is combination therapy important? Well, if you had two drugs, one is ther was therapy A that was 85% effective. Let's say therapy B was 90% effective. If you use both the drugs, you'd expect at least to get the lower limit of, the, of having the better of the two drugs. And hopefully, you'd have some synergies even better over time. And uh, a lot of these combinations are being tried now to try to get that. And often, they're a field therapy with a uh, locally destructive therapy. So here's a study where they compared uh, cryosurgery with amicomod. So it's like Reese's Pieces. You have to have the chocolate and the peanut butter for it to work, right? And here they looked at this data. This was done in the US and Canada. And the bottom line is that with, here are the demographics of the patients. But it turned out that the combination of cryo plus amicomod was much better than the cryo and the placebo. <clears throat> in terms of the medium number of lesions reduced, you could see a market improvement with that. The complete clearance rate is markedly improved with the combination. The number of lesion counts over time is markedly improved with the combination. So that's a combination that's being looked at. Here's a combination of cryo and topical diclofenac. And again, same thing, that the combination results were better than the individuals with this. And you can see 46% combination, 21% for cryo alone. This is looking at a study of sequential combination of cryo with 5-FU, rather, and PDT. And again, you see combination with various other things have been used. So combinations where we are in the future with various combinations, various things. Now, with these combinations, you can either sometimes do this with serially, in other words, doing therapy A and doing therapy B and getting a result, or you can do them in parallel. And there's advantages and disadvantages to doing that. Then also, if you're using a field therapy versus a local, do you do the lesion-directed therapy first and then the field? It reduces the burden of AKs prior to the field therapy, and it reduces some of the skin reactions. Or do you do the field therapy first and then mop up with the cryo, with the local res afterwards, with it giving you a shorter duration of therapy? This is like a chicken and the egg problem, and it goes on with the discussion all the time. No answer to this, so it's what you're comfortable with. And then sustained clearance versus topical therapy. Again, I, I'm going to... I apologize, I'm going to just skip through this because we've talked about this study. But I want to finish with a couple of things briefly that the combination therapy, field therapy, sequential, concurrent, these are all the issues that are important. Um, these are all papers that are about relatively recently. Look at these combination therapies for it. So this is kind of the algorithm that's out there right now. For AKs, individual lesions, you're going to be lesion-directed. If there are multiple lesions, what we do is typically we could do lesion-directed followed by a field therapy, Field directed by a lesional treatment of therapy, PRN, in other words, freezing off what's needed, or sometimes field directed plus field directed. Well, all these combinations are out there. We'll see more of it in the future. So field therapy can enhance sustained clearance, but clearing baseline AKs during and after treatment may be helpful by using local therapy for this. And again, a long-term therapy is important. 
These are a bunch of other things that have been suggested to potentially work. A lot of other things we talked about, antioxidants in the prior talk, they may have some value with this. Um, this whole idea I mentioned before, this actinic neoplasia syndrome, people are talking more and more about this. So I guess I want to finish with five key questions for future directions. First of all, do the different management strategies or different methods of removal of the lesions lead to any difference in morbidity? the difference in incidence, the difference in number of duration of AKs, or difference in quality of life? I mean, these are the questions that we really don't have answers to yet. Question number two is, what's the natural history of actinic keratosis? You know, what's the natural progression? Um, and what is the expected incidence of progression? We really don't have those numbers yet either. Number three is, will reducing the incidence of SEZ reduce the morbidity and mortality? In other words, people in the government argue that it's not worth treating these because most people don't die of their SECs, so why bother spending the money? But what proportion of these will go on to either be to mortality or to significant disfigurement and other things, say potentially estoppable? <clears throat> Number four is, this is a key one, can we at some point identify which AKs will go on to be invasive squamous cells? Be great to have markers for that. And number five, are there characteristics that we can identify a group of patients who are at higher risk, who need closer monitoring or more treatment? Are there any data to support any kind of monitoring protocol? We don't have that yet either. And for patients who have multiple recurrent actinic keratoses, does the effectiveness of the management strategies differ? We don't really know that either. So I've tried to show you an hour some stuff about AK therapies and, and why it's a challenge to do this and why you have to compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges. But I think the most exciting thing is that there's a lot of new approaches that are out there. There's a lot of research being invested in this. And it's a really dynamic area of our field that's going to continue to grow rapidly over the next few years because the incidence of these, these things are going up too, so the demand's going to go up for them too. So I'll stop at that point. And again, thank you very much. And I'll take, uh, I guess I got two minutes for questions. So if there's any questions anybody has on any of these, please. So the question is, if uh, you didn't have a choice and you had to do pulse therapy for 5-FU, do I have a style? I do some pulse therapy with 5-FU. You know, it was originally the pulse therapy for 5-FU was actually developed potentially as a treating for photo damage, where they were trying to use like, you know, a couple of days a month and trying to do that. Um, it actually does work for it, but I'm not sure you necessarily want to give that to younger people, given the ramifications of that. But um, I typically treat once a month for six months. That's how I do it. Once a week, sorry, first, first week of the month for six months, I'm sorry. And uh, I tell people start from day one to day six or day seven of the month and do it. But it's not, you know, that's my 10th line treatment, I would say, to do that. Thank you again so much for inviting me. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs>